I'm excited to welcome this week's Tiara Talk Show guest, former Vice President of Resort Development for Imagineering, Robert Holland, to the show. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Tammy. It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you. It's nice to have you on the show because this is probably going to be the first time in all of my interviews I've talked to somebody specifically about the resorts, you know what I mean? The crafting and the creation of them. So this is very, this is untread territory for me. <laughs> oh, great. It's, it's territory that I walked on for a lot of years. So I'm more than, more than happy to tell you what I know. And, and when you first began with the Disney company, you worked for WED and then which transitioned into, you know, WDI. But what was one of the first projects that you worked on for Disney? It was interesting. I mean, when I think back, you know, to my childhood, like a lot of people, my generation, I grew up with Walt Disney. I mean, one of the earliest memories that I have of television was uh, the Mouseketeer Club, the original one with Annette Funicello and that gang. Um, I can also remember uh, being enamored with Davy Crockett, the series that Disney had on. So enamored, in fact, that at one point in time, I think I asked my parents, I wanted to change my name to Davy, but that didn't work out, I guess. And, um, you know, the all the Disney shows that Walt was on, the Disneyland show and Wonderful World of Color and all the other ones that were along the way were certainly part of my childhood. It was interesting, though, I really never visited a Disney theme park until I think it was 1972. At the time, I was actually working for the federal government, the Veterans Administration. I'm an, I'm an architect by training and, and by license. And in those days, I was doing healthcare design uh, out of Washington, and then ultimately I moved to California working for them. And I visited Walt Disney World, I think the first time in about 1975 or six, I believe, just very briefly, just to see what it is. I happened to be in Orlando for uh, some other business. And uh, that was my first exposure to, to a Disney theme park. Never did I imagine that I would work for Disney in any way. So long story short, I, I always wanted to move to California. I had an opportunity with the government to go out there and do some hospital work. I was out in the San Francisco area for about three years. I loved California. Uh, the work was starting to run out. Uh, somebody in Washington was about to throw a dart and send me to, I don't know, Oshkosh or somewhere. And I wanted to have some uh, say in my future. And I also felt as though that my career at the federal government had kind of run its course. So I started looking. And I really didn't know anything about WED. I, I didn't even know WED existed. I didn't know for sure that Disney had any kind of design or you know, project management company, although I vaguely remembered reading an article somewhere. And frankly, I was searching primarily for something probably in the healthcare design or construction business on the West Coast. And I ran across an ad in the LA Times, and it said WED Enterprises, which meant nothing to me. And it was, uh, it was this character holding a placard. And the placard was advertising engineers, mechanical and electrical, if I remember pro uh, correctly, maybe structural as well, but definitely not architects. And But the placard was being held by what appeared to be a mouse. You could see the top of two mouse ears, and you could see mouse fans, and you could see mouse feet at the bottom. Uh, but all it said was WED, and it didn't say much more other than they were looking for engineers. And I thought, aha, this might be Disney. So I basically, you know, this is pre-internet days. These are the days where you used to type things. Uh, I typed out a, a letter and a resume, and I basically said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not any of the things you're looking for, but here are the things that I have done, and I think I can do for you. 
and sent it off to them in the mail, never really expecting to hear from them again. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I got a, a letter or a phone call, I don't remember which, from, from somebody at WED saying they'd like to interview me. Um, I had hoped that it was going to lead to a job to stay in California because that really was my intent. Um, so I said, yeah, why not? So um, I, I flew down to, to from, I was living in the uh, Palo Alto area at the time. I flew down from the San Jose airport to Burbank. I'll never forget uh, the first time when I picked up my ticket at the airport, they had a ticket waiting for me. And, and the lady at the ticket counter said, oh, cool, Disney. I mean, it's like, wow, you know, this is, this is, no one ever said that about the Veterans Administration that I remember. And so I fly down there and, and I interviewed a whole bunch of people, which is fairly typical with the, the Disney organization. And it turned out the position that I, that I ended up taking, which was the, the field architect for the resident engineering staff uh, for building of Epcot, uh, was a position they were thinking of, of opening and advertising it. And um, I kind of, I guess my resume beat the, the requisition for the job uh, in the door. And uh, I interviewed a guy by the name of Miller Andrus, who became my boss, who was the chief resident engineer for WED. Uh, it meant moving to Florida, uh, which I wasn't too excited about, to be honest. I thought that Florida was the kind of place that old people like my parents visited or lived. But I figured, hey, you know, working for Disney would be pretty cool. So um, I actually did work for WED for about six months in L.A., uh, Glendale, before I moved to Florida because my job was ending there. And it was a great opportunity for me because I was only one of two people in the resident engineering staff that actually was involved at all in the design process in L.A. So I, I met a lot of people. And then I ultimately moved to Florida in uh, January of uh, 1980, the very beginning. So that's how I got my start. After my post-Disney career, I ended up teaching architecture at, at Penn State for a number of years. And I was teaching professional practice. And even today, I mentor a lot of students. And, and I always say, you know, just because a position isn't advertised doesn't mean that you can't be hired. So take the initiative there. You know, if it's a company that you're interested in, just tell them who you are and what you think you can do for them. And, and you never know. And if I hadn't taken that initiative with, with Disney, I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten hired. And to be honest, when I when I got the job, I mean, I think it was realistic enough when I learned what the project was, Epcot, which at the time I think was the largest privately financed construction project in North America, if, if not one of the largest in the world. And I fully expected that I would only work for them for about three years. I figured they would hire hundreds, if not thousands of people to do this gigantic project. And then, you know, within six months or a year after the project opened, they'd probably lay off half the staff or more, which is exactly what they did. Um, but I figured, heck, you know, three years with Disney would look great on my resume. Uh, little did I know that it would end up being a 26 year plus career. With Epcot specifically, you worked on Future World in preparation for opening day. Can you tell me a little bit about that process of leading up to opening day? Because from what I gather from previous conversations, a lot of things, you know, were still in the works and trying to be fine-tuned and perfected as soon, as soon as possible. So what was that experience like for you, just trying to make sure that everything was kind of ready and ready to go for uh, October First, 1982. Well, it was crazy. <laughs> you know, I think you've probably heard and read that from many other people that survived the experience. I actually started in a, in a much more limited role. I, I was hired as called a technical field architect where I was looking after quality control and 
and the technical aspects of a facility architecture. And that's what I, I think I did for maybe the six, first six months or a year. And then as our, as our staff expanded, um, Miller Andrews, the chief resident engineer, decided to give me the role of, it was a great title, Senior Project Engineer for Future World, uh, an overview of all the projects in, in, in Future World. And it was crazy. Um, you know, the, the designs weren't finished. Uh, I don't think that was anybody's fault necessarily. It just was the reality of a gigantic project of which, you know, a lot of different ideas and pavilions and countries were pitched from time to time and some stuck to the wall and some didn't. And so it was, uh, you know, and the usual Disney process of constant improving the design. And so we, the role of resident engineering was to act as the interface between uh, WED in those days um, and the contractors. And so we would receive the drawings. Typically, WDI or WED would do uh, through design development or early design development, then it would be turned over to an outside architect and engineer under their supervision. We would get the drawings from them and then issue them to the field um, and then you know start the construction process. There was an enormous amount of uh, clarification required, which was part of our job, a lot of filling in the design. I mean, we didn't design very much in the field. Uh, however, we would let California know, Glendale know when the design was lacking or there were issues and they would issue clarification through us. And then we would provide quality control to make sure that the designs, particularly the facility side, um, were being installed as per the, the documents. And it was crazy because um, it was down to the wire. Um, the, for a number of reasons, the infrastructure work got delayed, which meant a lot of the area development, the concrete and landscape work couldn't be done until the last minute. So an enormous amount of that was really finished in the last 60 to 90 days before opening and then it was the 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 particularly the ride side of the show and ride um you know a couple of the projects energy spaceship earth imagination were particularly problematic because they were one-of-a-kind ride mechanisms that um just had never been built before and required a, an enormous amount of experimentation and test and adjust and and some of them like spaceship earth um, came down to within almost minutes of, of opening and uh, imagination actually the ride didn't make it until about six months later but it, it was crazy. Sometimes I picture somebody doing an entire documentary on just the opening <laughs> of Epcot and all of your stories because it sounds like you were all very determined to make sure it was the best it could be but with so much limited amount of time and you know wanting to make sure that uh, everything was fine-tuned as best it could be so you know generally it was not awful. Generally, the press was was quite positive, and most of the bugs got worked out pretty quickly. I think everybody was was quite proud of it, although most of us were quite exhausted, for, at least at the opening day. I can remember going home that opening day after having been up pretty much continuously for several days and and just being exhausted. And uh, and actually, Spaceship Earth broke down shortly after. The AT&T sponsor and the, and the Disney corporate people wrote it for the first time. And that was kind of a depressing experience. But nevertheless, ultimately, it got up and running more reliably. 
you helped out with the France and China and Morocco pavilion. What did you work on specifically for those three pavilions? Well, it was actually, it was great for me because I really had nothing to do with World Showcase prior to opening. I mean, obviously, every once in a while, just to get a break, a little bit of exercise, I would walk around World Showcase during phase one construction, but I had no responsibility for it. And and, uh, you know, other than working with a lot of people that didn't, um, I just didn't have a lot of interface. Post-opening, though, although I, I did uh, maintain some interface with specifically Imaginations and later Horizon Pavilion, uh, ultimately I didn't have much to do with Seas for, I don't exactly remember why, but I, I did work on Imagineering and Horizon somewhat post-opening. But I, my focus um, changed then to World Showcase. Uh, Morocco was coming online, and so I was very involved in Morocco. Again, as kind of the the resident engineer, making sure that the quality was good and that the you know all the questions got answered and things moved along as efficiently as they could. I finished the upstairs restaurant at France, uh, a bakery project there, um, the addition of the restaurant at China. It was kind of an interesting time period because it was the period where uh, WED was going through significant downsizing. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say, you know, there were more than 2,000 people at WED pre-opening. Now, some of them were working on Tokyo, to be fair. But post-opening of Epcot, they really started to ramp down quite quickly. And, and I, I happened to be working on the upstairs France restaurant. And it wasn't a particularly complicated project, but it, it was a project that I had nothing to do with the design. So I was strictly reading the drawings as they were building it. And occasionally I had questions. And, and normally in those days, the first person I would call would be the architectural job captain in Glendale and say, OK, we've got a question about this and other thing. And a couple of times I called and the answer, the answer I got was so-and-so's not working here anymore. <laughs> well, OK, who's the job captain? Well, I'm not sure. Finally, they passed me to Chris Carradine, who was the art director or the senior show producer for the project. And, and I really didn't know Chris very well, but we got talking on the phone. And finally, Chris said, look, he said, everybody's gone. He said, I'm busy working on something else. He said, I'm sure, I'm sure you can make good decisions. Just decide whatever you want to do. So anyway, it was strange, though, because I was calling and, and there weren't very many people left in Glendale anymore. And frankly, there were even fewer in Florida. But it was a great experience working on, you know, something other than future world, working on the highly detailed, you know, historic architecture of World Showcase. So, you know, that went on for several years post opening. Uh, some of it I was uh, uh, still a WED employee. But then at a certain point, there used to be a group in Florida called WED Florida, which a year or two after opening transitioned to be called um, Walt Disney World Design and Engineering, basically the same people, but uh, the management turned over to Walt Disney World. And ultimately, I joined that group. And I, I actually worked on a project that was later going to become one of my projects, worked on the Grand Floridian. Um, it, was a, it was a project that had been worked on by the Florida group some years before, uh, we picked it up again. We we tried to get management interest. This is pre-Eisner. Management interested in doing the project, but there just wasn't any interest in doing hotels. Um, ultimately, I became the, the manager of design for Walt Disney World Design and Engineering and did mainly small renovation projects to the theme parks for a couple of years. So was Grand Floridian your your 
was that with the way that you kind of got into working on the actual resorts themselves? Yeah, it's how it came about was Eisner came on board in what, 1984, if I remember the right year. And, um, you know, of course, the company was going through terrible times where it looked like it was going to be bought out by somebody who was going to tear the company apart. And and Eisner and Wells kind of came riding in on their white horses. And um, you know, I remember there was a big sort of pep rally at the Magic Kingdom in front of the castle where they introduced themselves and talked about all these wonderful things that were going to happen. Of course, not many people knew a lot about um Eisner and Wells. It, it was funny. I, I, I had lunch with John Hench and uh, a guy by the name of Bob Smith, who used to be my boss at, at Walt Disney World for a while. Bob worked for many years for WED and other Disney entities. And the three of us were having lunch one day, and it was about the time that Eisner was coming in. And and John said something like, he said, well, he said, you know, this is going to be interesting. He said, this is going to be the first time that that Disney's going to go really Hollywood. He said, prior to that, it, you know, it's always been kind of a family and a closely held company. And, and I won't say John had concerns, but he said, you know, Hollywood people are a different beast. And <laughs> he said, this is going to be an interesting ride. And it was an interesting ride. Um, certainly when, when Michael and, and Frank Wells came in, the dynamic changed from, gee, what would Walt have done? And, you know, I don't know whether we should do this and whether we should do that. And there was a meeting, actually, it was in the building where we had our offices for Walt Disney World Design and Engineering. And we were asked to gather all of the projects that had ever been designed that had some merit and put together sort of a dog and pony show for Michael and Frank and the Bass Brothers, who were the big investors in Disney and several other people. And put on, you know, Dick Nudis was there and put on a dog and pony show of all these projects and that had never been advanced very far. And Grand Floridian was one of them. And at that point in time, all there was was a was a beautiful rendering of a Victorian hotel and and a sort of a rough site plan. There wasn't a lot more. And as I recall, and I'll be honest, I was not in the meeting. I was on the other side of the wall. <laughs> the invite list did not go as as low as me. But the guy that was going to become my next boss, Hal McIntyre, was in the room, and he said, soon as they showed the Grand Floridian, the question from Eisner and Wells, and particularly the Bass Brothers, who at that point in time owned something like 30% of the company, the question was, why in the world didn't you build that? And and the answer was, well, you know, up until this time, the company just didn't seem to be interested in expanding the hotel market or their, their share of the hotel market in Orlando. And the Bass Brothers said, you're crazy. That's what you need to do. Hotels, 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 hotels. That's your next project. And so we almost immediately got marching orders to start the Grand Floridian project. Uh, about the same time, and it's kind of a very complicated story, and there's a certain amount of gnashing of teeth, corporate gnashing of teeth um, between Imagineering and what became Disney Development Company and Eisner and Wells and the Bass Brothers and a lot of people. But um, long story short, the Disney Development Company was formed um, which the executives, um, at least initially, uh, were partially um, Disney people like Wing Chow and, and some people like that. And uh, eventually I was maybe the 10th or 12th employee. Uh, but also they brought in a bunch of outside real estate development experts, people that were really top notch in their field to, to develop this, um, to develop the, the non-theme park 
uh, uh, work. And so the decision was made, I assume, by Michael and and, and uh, Frank Wells that they were going to set up a separate company that at the time reported directly to Michael that would essentially do the master planning for the company, um, land planning, no, no matter what it was, but would then focus on the design and the project management of everything that wasn't a theme park. And that became Disney Development Company. And Grand Floridian became the first project. So um, after spending about two years with Walt Disney World, I then switched over to Disney Development Company as the project manager for the Grand Floridian, which was kind of a daunting task because I had never done a hotel project before. And once again, typical Disney, um, learning uh, your feet to the fire. And uh, it was an exciting project, to say the least. And I think it turned out pretty well. Um, but it, it was it was really an exciting project. And um, like I say, that there was some controversy about the development company taking away design work from WED. Um, and and you know, I, I, I would say that there was some tension there for sure. And to be honest, I think Michael created some of that tension purposely. There were a few projects early on, um, where WED wanted to get highly involved in a hotel design project. And there were a few of those, a few of them where there were almost competitions between um, the Attractions Imagineers and the Disney Development Company. Um, ultimately, um, Disney Development Company was given the responsibility for essentially, again, everything that wasn't theme park. And part of that, frankly, and if you read the book, books about Michael and, and the, you know, the takeover of Disney and all those kinds of things, it, it, it's all in there and it's mostly true. Um, there was a lot of interest in the company, not only from the Bass Brothers, who owned 25 or 30 percent of the company, but they were highly engaged with the Marriott Corporation and a guy by the name of Gary Wilson, who used to be the chief financial officer of Marriott, I believe, came into Disney as the chief financial officer. And there was talk for a while of turning over um, all the hotels to Marriott and not make them Disney hotels. The, the Bass Brothers and some other pushed pretty hard and said, why should Disney be operating these hotels? Why don't they use let Marriott use their money to build them and operate them and just have them on Disney property and you take a share? And um, I remember even taking the Grand Floridian design before it was built. And we were told, OK, slash the budget by X. And what would this project look like if Marriott built it? And so we kept strip, stripping off frou-frou and this, that, and another thing, trying to get it down to a so-called Marriott budget. And ultimately, it went before Michael. And again, I wasn't at that particular meeting, but I understand Michael basically said over my dead body, um, if, if the hotels are going to be on Disney property, if they're branded Disney, Disney hotels, they're going to be Disney hotels. And But... So ultimately, we got to do Grand Three more or less like we had planned to do it. But there, um, there was a certain amount of pressure that the hotels not be too theme park like. And I guess by, what I mean by that is there were budgets that needed to be uh, met that were certainly lower than theme park budgets. What about all star movies? Because I had been there only once and it was actually pretty recently because I was just you know taking a look at some of the hotels because I had some downtime and I was actually pretty surprised that you guys included Fantasia 2000 <laughs> into one of the theming so can you talk it's a little bit about that <laughs> sure um well 
I, I really had nothing to do with the first two phases of All-Star, music and sports. Uh, however, the project was originally master planned for something like roughly 6,000 rooms, so, you know, about 2,000 each each piece. And by the time we got to sports, um, I think by then I was a, a director uh, level. And so, therefore, instead of just having one project, like when I was doing Grand Thirty and I had multiple projects and, and All-Star, All-Star movies ended up being one of them. Again, to be fair, I think the project had already started. It had a good, knowledgeable um, project team. It was the third of a, of a proven, uh, I think, prototype of of the economy hotel at Disney. So it wasn't like I added a tremendous amount to it. Um, however, I did have a management overview of it, and, and I do remember one of the one of the highlights of of my Disney experiences, which there's many was the reason that Fantasia 2001 in there is that was Roy Disney's pet projects. He he wanted to do an updated version of Fantasia. And I don't know whether it was kicked to him that Michael wanted to keep him out of trouble or what, I don't know, uh, to honor his heritage with the Disney family, I guess. And so Roy was doing the Fantasia 2001 as kind of his own project. And so it was decided at some point in time since the you know, the theme was was music and Fantasia 2000 was coming out about the time that the hotel was open that we should include that. And so I remember myself and, and the project manager for the project, just the two of us attended a private screening of Fantasia 2000 with Roy Disney. So it was just the three of us in a screening room at the studio. Um, I had met him before, but I certainly never spent a lot of time with him. Um, he was incredibly personable. He gave us, you know, I don't know, an hour and a half of his time to explain the the movie concept to us. And we went over some architectural concepts with him. And so it was really a neat experience for, for me. Now, how many guests today that go to stay there and see the Fantasia 2000 have, even have a clue what it is? I don't know. Maybe if they're watching Disney Plus, they, they know. But um, it, it had a somewhat limited run, I believe. The Jack in the Box actually scared me because I was there at night. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is horrifying. I said that villain. But, you know, you did a good job because, hey, it's the villain. So I, I always thought it would have been cool that they would have brought in villains to do just a hotel of those. Did you ever have a concept um, in mind that maybe never got to to the creative stage or was approved that you would have loved to have seen happened? I have many. How many hours do you have? (laughs) Go ahead. I'd love to hear some of them if that's okay. (laughs) If a project died, it might have been one of mine. And if the project was in trouble and they wanted to call in a relief pitcher to try to save it, it probably was one of mine because many projects I ended up going to places like... Venice for the cruise ships and Hong Kong for hotels and, and Paris for hotels. Not not that the project team there was doing a bad job, don't get me wrong, but they were all challenging projects. And, and because I had pulled projects, I guess, like Epcot and the Grand Floridian out of the fire before, that they would come looking to me to do those kinds of things. But I also had a lot of projects that, it's funny, I'm sitting in my office and, and my office is, is covered with um maybe not hundreds, but certainly scores of photos and and mementos from various, mainly Disney projects. And uh, several of them weren't built. I mean, probably one of the most um, unusual ones. And and, and it would have been interesting to see how 
Disney guests would have reacted to it, but there was a project called the Mediterranean, of which I think there's actually been several with that generic name. But it specifically was a hotel project that sat on the property that's directly in front of the Contemporary Hotel, not far from the Magic Kingdom. Today, there's still nothing there. Um, it is the last great hotel site on Seven Seas Lagoon. Um, it was decided to actually it's one of two hotels that I worked on on that site. Um, this one, it was decided to use an architect by the name of Antoine Predock. Antoine did Santa Fe Hotel in uh, Paris, which I had worked on with Antoine for that. Antoine is still alive today. He's an AIA gold medal winner, which is a big deal. Um, but he's a sort of a cosmic designer. He's a bit out there. Um, he's really excellent with volume and forms, but he is definitely not um, a literal designer. I mean, he is as far away from Bob Stern, who did your Beach Club Hotel, um, as you almost can be on the architectural spectrum. Um, Michael Eisner, though, liked him because he was quite hot at the time. And we asked him to do the Mediterranean Hotel. We ended up spending quite a few million dollars doing all the design documents for it. Um, it's it's a sort of, um, you know, has the feeling of a Greek island hotel, but in a fairly abstract form. And uh, we actually started construction and then not of the not of the buildings themselves, but we started to move some fill up there because the site was a little low. And then the first Gulf War hit. Um, at the time, we had several other projects going. Um, the company got very nervous about whether they would have the demand for the hotel, and they decided to cancel it. So we stopped the pro. It actually was bid. We were about to select the general contractor, and we had to notify the contractor that we were not going to father. So that would have been a very interesting one. Uh, a few years later, on the same type site, we, we designed a project that was generally known as the Venetian Hotel, although probably would have had to go on by another name for obvious trademark reasons in Vegas. But we, we hired Wimberley Allison, Tong and Gu, or those, those days called WAT&G. They were the architects of the Grand Floridian. They also worked on the Disneyland Paris Hotel, also the Hong Kong Disneyland Hotel. So in other words, they did all the Victorian stuff. Um, they did a an Italian Venetian take on a Mediterranean hotel on that site. Uh, we took it through conceptual design and mainly because the company wasn't ready at the time to invest in more hotels that died. So, I mean, those are two of many <laughs> that I wish had gotten built. I mean, probably the biggest one would have been the third ship. I worked on the third and fourth ship conceptual design and, and preliminary negotiations with a shipyard in Europe off and on for about three years. And then finally, it looked like the company wasn't going to do anything for a long time. And that's finally when I decided I had other things to do. So, But if the third ship had gone when we thought it was going to go, I probably would have stayed with Disney a few more years. And now I see that there's a more of a trend with including the Disney characters within theme park rides and now the resorts. So if you could choose any Disney film, live action or animated, to do an entire resort on, what would you like to choose? Well, it's interesting. and I mean, that's a tough question. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because so much of my career doing the resorts, we, we felt as though we intentionally were trying not to imitate the, the theme parks or the films. So it's a little bit of a trick question. Um, 
Interesting, though, I, I've always wanted to do an Art Nouveau kind of surrealistic hotel. In a way, Grand Destino, the, uh, or the new, ho new addition to the Coronado, which, you know, I can say good things about and I can criticize. But to be fair, people can do that with my projects as well. I probably uh, doing a, a hotel in that kind of otherworldly theme, I think, would have been really interesting. Now, whether guests would have loved it, I don't know. Let's talk about the ships before we close out, because I, I love being on the ships. And I think they're a wonderful part and addition of the Disney of the Disney franchise. So tell me about the first ship that you worked on and, and what you've been what you had done for the company for the Disney Cruise Line. Well, it was a Disney magic. And, and uh, to be honest, I was not involved at the very beginning. Um, it's one of those projects where I was asked to come in and help somehow get it finished. Uh, so the project had been in work for maybe a year and a half or so. And, and uh, some of the work was being done out of the office here in Orlando. And, you know, so I, I knew what was going on. And I, it was really one of those projects. Oh, gee, wish I was I wish I was involved. But I wasn't at the beginning. Um, I, at that time, I was doing, I think, Coronado Springs here in Orlando. And I also was doing some work in Paris. I kept flying over to Paris as they were doing some post opening projects, kind of helping them out. And one of my trips over there, I got a call from Mike Reiniger, who was heading up the project under under wing. And he said, um, would you mind stopping by Venice on your way from Paris? And I said, sure, what's up? And he said, well, I'd, I'd like you to take a look at this. So I went to went to Venice and Walked a job with him and a couple of other people, and and clearly they had a challenge to meet the day that that cruise line had determined the ship was going to sail and then go into business. And I had never done a ship before. I think I had only ever been on a ship a couple of times in my life. I was not particularly a big cruise fan, um, but ultimately Mike and a couple other people said, you know, would you mind sort of trying to focus on on this project as well. So anyway, long story short, I think that was uh, June or July of, of probably 97, if I have the year right. And um, I started making, I never did move the family, but I started making very regular trips. So between um, that July and the following July, when we finally delivered the ship about six months late, I virtually lived in outside of Venice and working on the ship. Um, without a doubt, the most amazing, the most challenging project I ever worked on, even more amazing and more challenging than Epcot. Um, one, because it, it, it just had never done it before. A ship is a different beast than, than building a building. Um, it, it's, I think, in many ways, a lot more exciting than building a building. And, and doing it in Italy, which I, I loved, uh, doing it in Italy, though, which also a huge challenge because of, uh, let's say, somewhat lack of project management at the time. Um, but it was, a, it was a terrific project. And um, I remember that when we, we finally sailed in, in July, I was a senior Imagineer on board for the crossing. And we still weren't finished. We had about 250 workers on board and we loaded the ship with all sorts of crates of things to try to get finished on the nine day crossing, uh, which we also had about 250 people on board, uh, additional people. They were thankfully mostly friends and, and people like my family. But nevertheless, we had to work around guests on board. And uh, it was a crazy experience. But in many ways, it was the, the most exciting, the most emotional 
Um, a ship is a living, breathing thing that I never experienced with a with a with a building before. So it was great. Um, I did a little bit of work on the Wonder, although I did not stay for the finish. And then, as I mentioned before, I worked uh, um, quite a while on trying to get the third and fourth ships going. We we started them several times. Um, we thought we were going to go right before 9/11. I remember being in Matt Wiemet's office, who was the chairman of the cruise line at the time. Um, when we were called into the into, into the conference room, seeing the second plane hit the, the World Trade Center tower. And, you know, even though Matt didn't say anything to me, we, we just knew that the project was over, that it wasn't going to go anywhere for a while. So it was uh, I would have stayed. I would have been to Disney probably another five more years, if four or five years if the ships had gone in 2005. But they didn't. So anyway, the rest of the things I did teaching were was wonderful as well. And I don't regret it. I have to really thank you for being a part of the show. This was so great. We connected on Twitter, um, and I, I just I admire all of your work. So thank you so much for being on the show. And and before we close, I have three Disney themed questions I ask to all of my guests. Uh-oh. So <laughs> they're not too bad. They're called the Fab Three. So we'll start with the Donald one, which is as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Well, I mean, obviously you you remember the the, the Disney cartoons. I, I would say though, um, Davy Crockett, as I mentioned, made a big impression on me. And uh, actually, a lot of the whatever they were called, the the adventure in nature kind of films, as I was a little older, made a big impression on me. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? You're challenging me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's what I aim to do. Well, maybe the one I got to play, um, and and uh, f- and forgive me, uh, you know, I'm not as much of a Disney freak as you might think I am. Um, there's the bears, the, the big bears, and I got to be one of the bears at Disneyland, and I forget which one it was, but I remember, well, what am I supposed to do? And they just said, act dumb. So that, that worked pretty well for me. <laughs> said, From the country act, bears? Act, act big and dumb. And finally, our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Well, it's funny, I w- and now that you mentioned it, I can't think of it, but I will in a second. I- I've been writing some things for, we, we have a, a kind of a, a retired WED newsletter that, that is meant to be for that group only, but I've been, I've been, uh, writing some stories about building Epcot, some other ones. So I, this last couple of days, I've been writing about imagination. So it's uh, one little spark um, uh, is something that's been going through my mind, mainly because I was writing a story about it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Robert. This is so exciting and enjoyable because, again, I haven't heard stories like these before during any of my interviews, so this is great. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's many more, so if you want to do it again, let me know. But anyway, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. 